Welcome to episode 58. Today, Dr. Stephen Fleener will join us to talk about how to make science content comprehensible for language learners. Welcome to the Empowering Elves podcast. I'm Tan Nguyen, and the goal of this podcast is to serve language learners just like me and to empower passionate teachers just like you. Many content-specific teachers have received very little instruction on supporting language learners. How are they supposed to teach content to students who are also learning English at the same time? It is possible. That's why I have invited former science teacher and now author and consultant, Dr. Stephen Fleener, to return to the podcast to share his suggestions and approaches. He will share how to differentiate instruction, how to help students master content-specific vocabulary, how to structure a science lesson for engagement, and how to make lectures more effective for language learners. If you're interested in learning more strategies to support language learners, I have several highly interactive courses. You can find more information by going to my website. I hope you consider joining. Now, on to today's podcast. Back with us again is Dr. Stephen Fleener. He came back, well, he was here the first time to talk about vocabulary instruction. And that was just one particular episode on teaching content-specific vocabulary. And at the end, I said, Stephen, we really need you back to come talk about just teaching content overall, and particularly in science. He said, yeah, not a problem. And so we, I am so grateful that you're back to share with us because you were part of the ELL Chat Book Club and your book with uh, Tina on uh, working with language learners in science and people were just loving that and all the very practical strategies so i'm so excited to have you back so welcome back dr Fleener. thank you so much it's so wonderful to be back well, would you uh, start us off with maybe stories about when you taught language learners and what was that like for science so just like yeah absolutely. absolutely i was um I was teaching uh, science, various subjects in high school, and I was teaching to a very heterogeneous class. So um, my classes had newcomer um, English, language, English language learners. We had um, uh, kind of intermediates or, or uh, students who are, are gaining proficiency with the basic, basics of the language. Yeah. And um, we had a lot of non-English non-English learners in our class and we had a whole lot of um so-called long-term english language learners and uh in that they were at a pretty advanced level of proficiency with the, uh, with the basic english but the uh, or the conversational english um but they hadn't yet exited the the english learner program and the services and the 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 funny thing is that I, um, when I first started teaching, of course, I was, I, I really struggled to know what all my students' individual stories were because I was just trying to learn the fundamentals of teaching. Um, but one thing I noticed was that when I started to figure out who were so-called English learners and who were so-called non-English learners, what I realized is most of my students were at a similar level of proficiency with uh, science academic language. Yes. And um, I remember... Uh, one story was I had a student early on 
who I had taught a lesson um, about uh, protein synthesis in the cell. And um, this student, uh, you know, I did check for understanding. Thumbs up if you got it, thumbs down if you don't. And, and uh, this girl put her thumb really, you know, confidently up. And, and I said, that's great. You, you know exactly how this works. And I said, can you, can you explain to the class how this works? Uh, what, what's the pro process of protein synthesis? And she said, yeah, you know, the, the, the thingy goes out of that, goes out of that circle and then, and then it wiggles over and then, and it makes the, all, all those other circles, they come together. It's like a long, uh, what'd you call it? A chain? Yeah. So it's like a long chain and then, and then it goes and it, it uses the energy and it, and it, and it, and it can do all things. And she, I, I knew she, and she was looking at visuals. So I, I had done a good job early on of making a lot of content comprehensible. Yeah. So she was looking at a lot of visuals and she was referring to those visuals but uh, her response really, really uh, floored me because I realized I have no idea what she's saying. And at the end of the day, I don't think she really understands what she's saying because she didn't have the active vocabulary to go along with it. So that was a big wake up call for me to really focus on, um, uh, on uh, vocabulary. But I'll tell you the other lesson that I learned um, uh, from working with my students at all different proficiency levels with the English language and at all different proficiency levels with the science language was that the most important thing, this is probably true for learning generally, but particularly for um, learning an academic language, the most important thing is to have a growth mindset. Yes. And um, I had this student who, uh, who um, came in to my class, she was testing very, poorly, uh, like, like in the teens of a percentage out of, um, out of, out of 100%. And wow. I, I looked at her past testing performance and the, the standardized exams in Texas. She had, um, she had never passed a single standardized, she was in ninth grade, she had never passed a single standardized exam in her life. Wow. Um, and, and, uh, and, and here she was struggling with uh, all of these academic things and on top of that huge layer of confidence issues and um and we just focused on uh on having a growth mindset we focused you know i had all my students look at their test scores that they got from the quiz from last friday or, or whatever and and i said okay well let's look at the score and let's try to figure out what we can do to make it five points higher on the next test mm. and um she really embraced that growth mindset and um, I just saw her completely blossom over the course of the year. And um, not only was she learning the academic vocabulary and was improving her reading and, and improving every time on each of these uh, quizzes, but uh, this kind of culminated at the end of the year, she, she passed the first standardized test in her life. Um, and, and then the next, she was, a ninth, she was a ninth grader at the time. The next year she enrolled in uh, pre-AP or advanced level classes, and um, now she's in uh, now she's in college, and uh, so that was a really powerful moment for me to see the power of a growth mindset, both in language learning as well as just in um, academic confidence building generally. Yeah. So we, even though you and I are both content teachers, um, we don't teach the content. The goal is to actually teach students through the content. And, Absolutely. and if we're mindful enough, we get to say, hey, we're going to also show you 
growth mindset, what that means and where you can uh, persevere in this way. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. You, and great. I'll, I'll just say it really hopes it really helps to have a focus on the language. Yeah. Um, because that, that is something that uh, is, is tractable, is measurable, and students uh, can really build their confidence very quickly. Right. That's where the five points are. A lot of the times, it's really like, because I work in now the IB, and we, the, the language that we use between the descriptors, like, can uh -huh. they use uh -huh. the, the terminology correctly, the content-specific uh -huh. terminology correctly, and then how accurately they use it? It's like, yes. That's the thing that really determines their proficiency and their mastery and the ability to think critically. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and that, that, that's a really good point. I really feel like, you know, critical thinking is such an important skill that all teachers want to teach their students. But I really feel like if students have a foundation of uh, high levels of proficiency with academic language, then the critical thinking opportunities, they're just intuitive for the students. We present the critical thinking opportunities layered with lots of academic vocabulary and the students can intuitively learn how to critically think but if we present them the opportunity to critically think and the academic vocabulary is entirely inaccessible to them then they're not going to be able to access that that critical thinking um opportunity oh you're speaking to me stephen i so a few weeks ago i was teaching students cause and effect well i had students we watched the video about kiribati how it's sinking because of global warming it's an island nation and the water's rising. So uh, I wanted to teach, use that example to teach cause and effect. So I had, a, I had a mind map, cause, effect, small effects. And then I'm working around, working with kids. Some kids are filling it out. They're filling out the effects first. They're kind of filling out the cause after. Mm -hmm. And then when I work at the, when I, when I go to a particular student and it's blank, I'm like, what, where, what's going on? She couldn't, she couldn't respond. And he said, Tell me what the word cause means. She looks up, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm like, oh my goodness. This yeah. is like, I know you can think critically because of the way that you've responded before. Yeah. But I just didn't teach you the two key words you needed to know to be successful in this activity. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's not just about science that, that well, though you're, you're here as, mm -hmm. as a science expert, mm -hmm. it's not just about science, it's all content areas when we say, we need to focus on the vocabulary, the word level, sentence level vocabulary. Definitely, definitely. You started off with talking about working in a heterogeneous group. So what mm -hmm. is that? What are your suggestions for that? Because I know a lot of listeners are saying, yes, please talk about that. Well, very good point. Um, here's, here's definitely what I do not recommend. I do not recommend uh, trying to plan out an individual specific lesson for every single one of your students, particularly if you're in a situation like you are with, with 100 students. Um, it's, it's, uh, th there's a couple problems with that. The, the major problem is that we just don't have the time as teachers and practice to do that. Uh, but, but also, I'm convinced that if we really try to um, have these individualized focused lessons that we're, we're bound to miss something and we're bound to uh, put limits on students that we don't intend to put on. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to, you know, the buzzword is differentiation, but if you ask a hundred different people what differentiation is, you'll get a hundred different definitions. <laughs> um, uh, so 
a differentiation to me is um, not not creating individualized lessons. Mm -hmm. Differentiation to me is creating environments in which students at um, all different levels, all different proficiencies, they can each thrive and they can each grow one level up in that lesson. And so um, a great way to create that kind of environment is to have lots of open-ended guiding questions that, that students are uh, thinking about. And most importantly, to structure those questions with um, lots of opportunities for students to share with their partners and discuss in, in small groups, um, uh, as, as well as any kind of uh, visual anchors that, that um, support students in, in, in thinking about those questions. And generally, um, uh, I think that an ideal lesson is one in which a teacher is um, asking a few really good questions, mm. having students discuss those questions, and then the teacher is providing the students whatever minimum amount of direct teach or explanation the teacher needs to do in order to get the students to be able to address the question. But, um, but in general, the vast majority of the lesson are students discussing and, and writing and interacting with each other uh, about, these, about these key ideas. I know that uh, Sidelist is very keen on QSSA, QSSA, yes. as a way of structuring discussion. So would you like to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's a really good point of, of the importance of structuring discussions. Um, and I, and I, I, I'll tell you that I work with a lot of teachers who express to me a lot of frustration because they say, Stephen, I've heard this before. I've heard, yes, let me have my students talk to my partner. And I try that. And I say, students, talk to your partner. And you see that the students who are talking about the academic content are the students who are super confident and would probably raise their hand and volunteer the answer anyway. And then you have a lot of students who aren't talking. And, um, and that's what I really love the QSSA or the QSSSA process, because what it does is it is it um, is it structures the questioning and the discussion opportunities so that all students can really uh, thrive very well and they can really participate very well. And the, re the the way it does that is it makes the expectations and the um, and the instructions completely unambiguous. Students know exactly what they need to do. And they um, and, and it gives them all the tools that they need to do it. The way I like to talk about QSSA is um, I could teach you what QSSA is, and I could teach you all the structures of it. But instead, let's just let's just imagine we are going to uh, ask a question, and we're going to uh, randomly call on a student after we ask that question. Now, that student, let's imagine. It could be any student in the class, and that student could um, could have a whole lot of anxiety and lack of confidence and uh, uncertainty when we call on that student. So let's reverse engineer QSSA. Let's think to ourselves, we're going to ask a question. We're going to randomly call on any student in this class. So what do we need to do before we randomly call on any of these students to make sure everyone in the class is going to be 100% ready and confident? Right. And, and that's where QSSA is born. 
we have sentence stems, we have thinking signals, we have the opportunity to share with their partners. We even specify if, if, the, um, if this is beneficial to the students, we even specify who is gonna speak first in this group so that there's no uh, ambiguity between the students and, and they're all definitely poised. Every single one of them is 100% ready to answer that question. And, and, and you, know it's, you know it's a mark of success when, um, when uh, students stop seeing you calling on them as uh, a way of holding them accountable or of a way of saying gotcha, and they start seeing it as an invitation to participate in the class conversation. And I love Q Triple SA so much because it reminds me of the model that I always often share with teachers of where it's students speaking all day, mostly to each other. And so of course there's gonna be conversations with, with, with teachers where teachers are leading that conversation, but most of the time students are using this opportunity to process what they just watched, so what they just mm -hmm. read, what they just mm -hmm. experimented with. Mm -hmm. And as they process, they're making sense what's happening and they are uh, creating meaning and it's more engaging for kids. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I want to go back to the beginning and you talked about heterogeneous groups. Why do we want language learners, even beginners, to be in science classes, to be included in science classes instead of being pulled out and to have their own version of science classes for beginners? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I did use the word heterogeneous uh, when describing our classes. And indeed, that's very true. But um, what we often what we often talk about when we talk about language learners is we talk about uh, the, the heterogeneity of their proficiency with the common English language. And the reality is that um, there's a little bit of a leveled playing field for all level, all language learners at all levels when they enter into this new lesson because, um, because they're all new learners of the science language. And, um, you know, it's, it's not a completely level playing field. Some students come in with some uh, prior experience with that, with that academic language. Um, but the, when we're talking about beginner or newcomer English learners, the goal of, of our uh, beginner English learners in our science classes is the exact same goal of all of the other students, and that is for them to have um, mastery of uh, a, a key set of vocabulary words for that lesson yes. and to have a lot of um, exposure to different contexts of using that words and have a lot of practice and experience in using those words themselves. And so, um, so I am 100% an advocate for uh, beginner or newcomer English learners to be in, um, in, in, the, in the general ed science class with, with everyone else. And um, there are some specific accommodations that, that we can make to support them. Um, uh, specifically, we can give them sentence stems that are, that are more like sentence frames. And so the, the students are completing the sentence frames using uh, the key vocabulary without having to use all of the other common uh, English words that, that fill in like is and that and because and therefore. And, um, and, and that way the focus is laser pointed on, on the academic vocabulary uh, for those students. But again, the, the, you know, the general idea is 
I'm going to have you talk to your uh, partners or your groups, and I'm going to call on uh, a couple of people randomly to share, and that will guide the class conversation. And when I flick my randomization wheel or, or system or whatever it is, I want my uh, beginner um, English learners to be just as likely to be, be able to be called on. And I want them to be just as confident um, as all the other students in responding in front of the whole class. Um, so, uh, so however heterogeneous the class is, we can still make it successful for all students. And indeed, that should be uh, our goal. So in general, the more heterogeneous the class is, the more rich the lesson is, from my point of view. We're, and we're really talking about an equity side of it. We want mm -hmm. kids to be included and we don't want language uh -huh. to be a barrier to inclusion, to participation. I always tell teachers that we want kids to participate, uh, seek participation before perfection. And so I think the old school model was, okay, they have to be uh, native English speakers to be able to participate in science, like academic rich science classes. But in truth, when they are in those classes, that's the best opportunities for them to use science, to think critically. Yeah. I think Dorman said about, he said, we learn to swim by being in the water instead of standing in the parking lot, looking in the pool. Yeah, that's very true. I really like that. that that's very, very true. So as we are now in the pool, kids are in the pool, how do we make content comprehensible for kids? Uh -huh. Yeah, really good question. So, um, so before we start, we were talking about visuals. Visuals are really powerful at making content comprehensible. But uh, what I really advocate for with visuals is two things. For one, there has to be interaction with the visuals. Mm -hmm. We have to direct the students to take a look at the visual and think about the visual. Think about this question or this idea while looking at the visual. Um, I, I see a lot of um, uh, really print-rich classrooms with a lot of visuals. And my, my number one question always is, what interaction are students having with those visuals? So from my experience that um, I got really excited as, as a, a beginning teacher and wanting to create a, a really print-rich environment print rich environment. So I had one wall where I got all these old science posters and I just I just coated the entire wall in the science folder posters. And and it was like eight months into the school year and I said something and a student said, what's that? And I said, what do you mean what's that? It's right there on that poster. And the kid looked over and he said, oh, I've never noticed that poster. And it, it made me realize that um, if students are not interacting with the visuals, those visuals are just wallpaper. They're just like everything else. Uh, so, so that's the number one key thing is let's use visuals, but let's not use them as a passive thing. Let's use them as an anchor that, we're, that students are actively referring to uh, to be successful in conversation. The other thing that I really highly recommend about visuals is that there is some kind of structure to them that allows students to infer meaning. Yes. So um, I'll give you I'll give an example, and I've been giving this example to a lot of people. So I think I need to start coming up with a new example. But I love this example, so I'm going to give it anyway. Um, the word photosynthesis. Yes. Is a new vocabulary word for a lot of students. It has a 
you could read it, you could read a dictionary definition of photosynthesis, but you probably wouldn't really understand what that means because if, if you're new to the word, because there's so much complexity behind the concept, it's related in, in so many different ways to so many other vocabulary words. So I could show you a visual of a uh, sunny leaf and um, a leaf with the, with the sun behind it, and I could say photosynthesis. But that doesn't have any structure to it, and so a student might think that photosynthesis is a kind of plant, or a student might think that photosynthesis is uh, the sunrise when the sun's just above the horizon or something. And so to add some structure to it, all I have to do is um, draw an arrow going into the plant that is labeled CO2, and then the arrow coming out of the plant that's labeled oxygen, and all of a sudden you understand the photosynthesis of the process in which um, carbon dioxide is absorbed by the plant and oxygen is released. And we can make it more, more levels of complexity, but, uh, but, but that's the general idea of um, how to structure a visual. I was teaching, when you're saying that, I was thinking about my class when I was teaching my sixth graders two weeks ago about land subsidence. And they had to learn about pumping out groundwater. And so mm. we watched the YouTube video about what is land subsidence and we paused with the diagram. And then I, the diagram was a beautiful, wonderful animation, but it didn't have any words. It had arrows. So I added mm. the picture of having them, of, of, of annotating the different parts. Mm -hmm. and, then, mm -hmm. and then, so that added a level of complexion. And then I had them sketch note their own version of it too. Uh, oh, awesome. So, so then, you know, uh, every student, uh, it's, it's my belief that every student, every human being in the world speaks their own unique language yeah. and that everyone has their own very uh, specific experience and perspective that drives understanding. And so when you have a visual like that, not only is it, is it comprehensible to someone who, um, who is, is new to learning the common language uh, of that classroom, like English, for example, um, but it's also comprehensible in the context of that student's experience and perspectives. So when they're looking at that diagram, they're thinking to themselves, um, this is how it works. And they're using different words and, and different ways of reasoning than other students. Um, and so they're really able to build that comprehension. Right, it's their own um, process. Exactly, exactly. Even though they're very much so re like reproducing the same diagram, but the fact that they're going through the process of then having to draw themselves and understand what the drawing means, that's a level of understanding. That's... And, and you know, so, so visuals are the, are the number one thing I always advocate for, um, but for making content comprehensible, there's lots of, um, there's lots of tried and true uh, techniques, uh, w which is you know, really simple. Using gestures, uh, repetition, uh, can be really helpful speaking slowly or, or focusing on key ideas instead of, you know, it, it's really easy for a teacher who um, is unfamiliar with teaching uh, beginner English learners yes. to go off on a lot of like fun stories and, and, uh, and maybe use a bunch of idioms or maybe crack some jokes that, that are, are really fast. And yeah, exactly. And, and so, so, um, and so really focusing on, on the content, speaking slowly, repeating ourselves, that's all really powerful. But, you know, um, it's, my, uh, uh, it's my conviction that, that the, one of the biggest sources of comprehension, if not, uh, uh, if not the biggest source of comprehension, 
is the ability for students to practice output with each other yes. and, um, and, and, and hear from each other different perspectives, mm -hmm. but also them actually practicing the output. And so maybe that's as simple as them repeating vocabulary words or as simple as them having a structured conversation. But um, I, I, really, I really don't think it's we have some input and we have some output. I feel like it's, it's something that is married together that is constantly intertwined. Yes. Oh, that's, so on this, this Friday, I'm going to go to a school where I'll, I'll be working with some elementary school teachers, um, helping them think about comprehensible output, comprehensible input. And that's okay. where my key uh, takeaway for the comprehensible output uh, session where we're gonna say, oh yes, um, we're gonna talk about comprehensible output, but really it shouldn't be at the end product. Comprehensible mm -hmm. output is happening as you're establishing comprehensible input. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. as students are learning, they're talking. As students are learning about the concepts, they're writing, they're sketch noting. As students are learning about the concept, they are quick writing, they're, they're annotating, they're diagramming. So all these things are like little bricks that lay the foundation for a more intense comprehensible output, like maybe a report or an essay or a presentation. And as students are uh, talking and writing and sketching, they at the same time they are learning. Yes. And so, if our goal is uh, if our goal is to um, to get students to learn, then we need to teach them yes but more importantly provide the opportunities to in which they can they can practice that and that's when the learning really happens we have to actually let them get in the pool <laughs> nice use of the metaphor <laughs> i have a question about um lecturing so how i guess mm -hmm. you kind of you kind of uh, touched on it like how can we make lecturing more engaging because i know that content classes sometimes can lean itself towards teaching content through lectures Mm -hmm. Really good question. Um, so, you know, lecturing has, uh, has a bad reputation. It, uh, and I am not someone who believes that teachers should never lecture. I do think there's definitely a time and place for lecturing. Um, but I think that what we need to do is we need to think to ourselves, what is the fundamental purpose of me doing this lecture? And so therefore, what do I exactly need to cover to minimize this lecture? Um, because the most effective um, lecture is, is one that's, that, that's minimal. There's a, um, if we're, we're gonna talk like scientists here, there's a really steep curve in the effectiveness of a, of a lecture and then it plateaus very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I, I say plateaus, it probably starts to decrease even at some point, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so that steep curve occurs only over uh, a few minutes. Right. Um, and, and I know there was, there was this old rule of thumb that people used to say that however years you've been on this planet, that's the number of minutes that you can handle uh, a lecture. And I can tell you, I've been on this planet more than four minutes and I can't handle it or more than four years and I can't handle it more than four minutes of a lecture. So... <laughs> Um, so, uh, so, so lecturing is, is really powerful, but the idea is we're not lecturing with the intention of, um, giving students information that they could otherwise get by watching a video or by reading a text or, um, or, or something like that. 
what we're doing by doing the lecture is we're providing the students the exact amount of requisite um, uh, background knowledge in academic language so that they can be successful in having a structured conversation or uh, a structured writing activity or, or doing some kind of output. So um, an interactive lecture is one in which uh, the, the, the goal of the lecture is to have students out doing the output. Yes. And all we're doing in the lecture is we're setting up the students for the output. And I'll tell you um, one, one uh, version of this that's really powerful in a science classroom is the idea of that output being a question. Mm. So, so, so what we can do is we can, we can uh, prep students. Um, we can say, I'm going to lecture to you for about four minutes or five minutes. And while I'm lecturing to you, I want you to think about uh, uh, any of these ideas, you know, and then we can give them the sentence in advance. We can say something like, one thing I don't know is, or I did not understand when the teacher said blank, or when the teacher said blank, it made me wonder about. So we prep them, we say, you can use any of these sentences. I'm gonna leave them on the board. Let me lecture, think about that while I'm lecturing. Okay, done with the four minutes. Now pick a sentence and let's share with our partners. Um, and, and if that's the output, then what we're doing is we're, uh, in our lecturing, we're just providing the, the exact information that they need in order to uh, be starting to think critically about, about what it is we're talking about. It's the content. We're giving them the content to be able exactly. to, I think of content like, like uh, Lego bricks, right? And so now that we've given them the Lego bricks, we want them to create with their Lego bricks. And that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what sometimes uh, lecturers are, are provide that. Can you talk about uh, structured writing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can probably detect that there's a theme here yes. uh, of, of um, my message, and that is that structured conversations are really key to guiding all parts of the lesson. Um, that's, that's true with structured writing and structured reading. If anyone's wondering about how can I uh, in, improve my students' reading proficiency or, or their writing proficiency, my number one advice is have them talk about it before and or after they do that reading or that writing. Um, but we can we can further structure writing by um, by having the idea being that the students in their writing they're going to use one or more words from a word bank, and that word bank is the key academic vocabulary of the lesson. So this is what I like to think of when planning a lesson. I like to think. Okay, what is the written product that I really want my students to be able to generate that will show their mastery of this content? And what are the two to four vocabulary words that are going to be in that, uh, that written product that's going to um, that that that's going to demonstrate that mastery of the content as well as the language? Okay, once I know those words, I'm going to start the very beginning of the lesson. I'm going to say, here's our word bank for today. Let's focus on these words over and over and over again. And then when the writing opportunities do come, we say, okay, now use these words. And, and, and that, again, that's the goal of the writing uh, to be able to successfully use those words and concept. That's where we come out as, as language teachers in the context of content rather than content teachers. Yes. I think that's one of the best strategies that I've been using lately, to, uh, just the use of word banks when we want, when we want students to do quick writing or when I want the students to write a particular paragraph, 
I make sure that they're content specific words, but they're also um, more academic specific words. Like for example, I'm looking at land subsidence. And so they have to use the word groundwater. They have to use the word pump, but they, ha but they have to use the word condense, which is talking about clay and the clay yeah, condenses uh -huh. or compresses. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so they ha so that and the word compress is not just for science. It's it's using it's used all over. It's transferable, right? And we, we use the word causes and we use the word effects. And so it's all the way through that they're we're building their we're developing their ability and their confidence to write. And it's not at the first time that they pick up a pen or pencil or type on the keyboard, the that's the first exposure to the word. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, the flip side of that is, and we know this from practice, if we don't focus on those words yes. and we give the students the writing opportunity, they're going to do like my student did. They're going to say it and they and thingy yes. and all these other words to replace your academic vocabulary. Um, and, and, and they're going to feel successful doing it, but it's, it's, it's not going to be successful. I remember Beth Skelton said in a different podcast, she recommended teachers, well, exactly what you recommended, that when they plan, they think about what is the writing or the speaking that you, they want students to be able to say or do or write by the end mm -hmm. of the period and then plan backwards from that. And, and then Absolutely. Target the content specific words, target the academic words, the tier two vocabulary words, and then also highlight the transitions that we want students to be able to be using. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have only a few more minutes. So uh, I, I want to ask you about assessment and then teacher collaboration, because now I know that our field, we're moving towards uh, teachers working together instead of uh, in isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so uh, well, I think both of those things go really hand in hand very well. And that's um, the assessment, it, there's a lot of different forms of assessment, but I really, really highly encourage teachers who are not doing this already, um, who are in a professional learning community where they, they all share the same content for the same grade level. I really highly encourage teachers to create common unit, unit assessments for uh, once every, I don't know, two or three or four weeks. And with these assessments, what they're really doing is, um, is they're uh, thinking to themselves, what is it that in this unit or in these, this span of few weeks, what is it that I really want my students to learn? What are the skills that they need to demonstrate? Um, and what's the academic language that they need to demonstrate? And, and, uh, and to have a really clear idea of what that is ahead of time, but then also look at the data together and say, um, okay, we all gave our students these assessments. Um, here are the different results. What are we doing differently from each other um, that, that led to these results? So allowing teachers to, uh, we used to say data-driven instruction. So, um, so that, that, that phrase, what that means to me is um, looking at the assessment results as a way to inform what are practices that work or don't work with our students or our subpopulations of students. Um, and, and, and that can be a really, really powerful anchor of, of facilitating a conversation in the professional learning community. Um, so so I, I definitely have, what's that? 
Yeah, looking at students' work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and one thing that uh, I think is really critical, especially on what you just said on looking at students' work, is when we're planning out assessments, there's there's a lot of uh, advantages, and, and they're mostly advantages of convenience of having multiple choice assessment items. Um, but I really highly encourage teachers, especially science teachers, to have at least one item, if not several items on the assessment, be a free response um, uh, question where the students are writing out a paragraph uh, or more as, as their answer to the question. And, um, and that's where that student work comes in. There is a lot that can be learned from looking at student work and having that conversation uh, with your teacher peers um, after the fact. So, so that's, um, that's assessment generally, uh, but I would, I would encourage teachers to um, not wait every four weeks to have a conversation about how their students are doing. Um, and, and instead, I, I would uh, really encourage teachers to um, think of, we are talking about writing earlier, so to think of what is a, uh, what is a kind of guiding question of the lesson that students can provide a written product towards. And, um, and then they, uh, the, the, the students all turn in that written product at the end of the lesson and the teachers in their professional learning communities are able to reflect on what, what, is the, what is the quality of these responses and how we can make that, how can we make that higher quality, yes. something like that. That means like looking at the vocabulary, looking at mm -hmm. how they're structuring the sentence, the sequencing of the sentences, the transitions mm -hmm. they're using, yeah. That's uh -huh. definitely will help uh, move students. Like the student that you talked about who didn't pass any assessments, it'll move her five points up. Uh -huh. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, Stephen, I don't know how an hour always goes by so fast with, with you. <laughs> I'm always so grateful. Is there anything else that I didn't get to talk about in, oh, actually I do wanna ask you about reading. Like how can you make reading more comprehensible for kids? Yeah, really good question. The power of reading is that um, is that uh, students can can process reading more slowly than they are listening when we're coming when words are coming out of our, our mouths. If I'm teaching you about sedimentary layers, uh, then you can only process as as slowly as I'm speaking. Yes. Um, but if you're reading a text about sedimentary layers, you can process. Um, also, it's something that is a is uh, if there's a text, it's a it's a formal thing that students can refer back to. Um, so, uh, my my number one advice uh, of reading is to think to yourself, I'm going to give my students this reading passage, and I'm going to um, uh, when they finish the reading passage, I want them to talk about some some key points. So. Uh, what are some discussion questions I could have them discuss in their small groups? And whatever those discussion questions are about, before I give them the reading passage, I'm gonna tell them to, uh, to, to focus on these things when they're reading and making the annotations. And so there's pre-reading instructions to make annotations or to focus on um, certain points. And then there's post-reading discussion that specifically covers those points. Right. Um, and, and, and if that's really tightly aligned, then students are going to all read this text and they are all gonna get different things out of it. <laughs> There's gonna be students who, um, who, who might not even finish reading the text in the time that we give them, 
because uh, just because they're, they're slower readers. They're students who are going to read the text in, in a flash, in a heartbeat, and are going to comprehend none of it. And then there's going to be students who, um, who have different levels of comprehension and, and fluency. But if what we do is we all give them the same focus when they go into the text, and then after the text, we have them discuss those different points, um, uh, then, then they learn from each other, they build each other's comprehension. And you're probably detecting that what I'm describing is, uh, is really the, the talk, read, talk, write process. Um, it's really great to also add the write-in at the end. Um, but, but, but the general idea is, um, is to have students focus on, uh, on really concrete points and then have them discuss those points afterwards. Um, and, and we can do this specific to the text. If we're talking about a text describing chemical and physical changes, we can have specific things like what's look for an example of a chemical change or something like that. Um, or we can then just have general points to look at, look out for like, um, what's being described in this passage, uh, what's something that, um, well, there's something I talk about in, in, in my book, and that is to ask three questions. One is, what's something, um, what's this passage about? What's something that the author assumes you, you already knew when he or she started writing the, the text? And then finally, what's something you now understand? Um, and then and we can use those three questions and the, the um, accompanying synonyms, we can use that with virtually any text. Um, and students can address that over and over again. So you're, I, I really appreciate how you talked about um, having planning very strategically things that kids are gonna annotate for. Having them mm -hmm. look for that. So they're reading with a lens, they're like, like fishing for very specific particular, particular things. Right? And then they'll be able to talk about those things in the discussions. And then I yeah. also like the, the thing you just talked about, the second one you talked about, what is the author assuming I'm already, I'm, I already understand, which allows them to be able to go into groups and, and say, I think the author wants me to know this, but I don't know what that is. Yeah. So let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And those, those, those are conversations that, um, that uh, can informally and really naturally just, just uh, develop within the small groups. Right. A student says, um, the author assumed I knew what uh, compaction is and and a student says oh yeah you know that's that's just compacting where the where the rocks are coming together and then he's like oh yeah you know and, and then they and they have that conversation and so um and and so yeah that's a really really powerful question is um what was the author assuming uh that i knew already well what i was when i have kids read uh concept specific text i'll break it up into paragraphs or i'll have the paragraphs broken up into a slide a single slide and before they go mm -hmm. into the next slide, they're talking about what they just read in that, in that paragraph. Awesome. So, so it's yeah. like, that's really that structure because they like to just, okay, I'm done. But mm -hmm. we're, we're embedding that opportunity. It's more like talk, read, talk, read, talk, read, talk, read, read, like little reads, little talks so that they can do a big talk at the end and they can do a big write-up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, that, that's something that kids need, but that's something that adults need as well. Yeah. It's, it's something very human that uh, we need a focus when we're reading yes. um, and and for long-term retention as well as comprehension we have to be able to discuss what it is we're reading and, and process it um, i know i have read the same paragraph over and over again uh late at night when i'm reading my magazine or whatever um 
and and it's not until I actually focus. What am I trying to read here that I, that I start to have that comprehension? Yeah, it's about the interaction. Yeah, I think I remember when you're talking about the picture that you talked about in the beginning. Like it's not just uh -huh. looking at a picture, but it's interacting with the text. Interacting with the visual uh -huh. text is the same thing uh -huh. we're having kids interact with uh, reading, a reading passage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stephen, uh, Dr. Felino, I am so appreciative of your time. Can we end with uh, traffic light teaching? So a red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing. A yellow light is something that you, uh, let me reframe this, because yellow light can sound negative, but I don't want it to be like that. Um, yellow light is something that we should slow down more. Like, how can we slow down our teaching, our practice? And okay. then uh, green light is something that you ask teachers to do as much as possible. Okay. Um, so red lights, I'll say, uh, stop doing, especially now in, in as much worries as uh, every teacher worldwide has right now about, uh, uh, about their current situation. Let's stop worrying about um, uh, the quantity of, of, um, of content that we need our students to learn. And um, if, because if we have that worry as our, as our prominent uh, guider, then we are going to, we're just going to be consumed by it and we're gonna end up just spitting out all kinds of stuff to the students, um, trying, trying to fill a, you know, a, a water uh, cup with a fire hose. Um, so let's stop worrying about uh, uh, how much content we have to cover and um, let's slow down with the processing opportunities. And what I mean by that is I mean, um, let's think to ourselves, um, okay, here's my lesson, my, my, my time allotment for this lesson, and I'm gonna have X, Y, and Z processing opportunities. I want to very deliberately make those, um, I'm, I'm gonna slow them down, so I'm gonna stretch them out longer in the lesson. And that doesn't mean that you need to say, uh, students, talk to your partners about this question. I'm going to put a timer on for nine minutes, 10 minutes, and you know, just keep talking for that. It doesn't need to be unstructured like that at all. But what it can be is it can be, um, uh, okay, here's this, here's this really uh, key question. Let's do a thinking signal. Let's think about this. Here's the sense them. Let's share it with our partners. Okay. Now that we share with our partners, and maybe that's happened somewhere between 30 seconds and two minutes. Um, okay, let's hear from a variety of different responses and let's have a class discussion that's really driven by those different responses. Um, and so instead of saying something really simple like, what's the powerhouse of the cell? Tell your partner what the powerhouse of the cell is. Okay, Johnny, what's the powerhouse of the cell? Mitochondria, okay, good, next thing. Let's let's extend that out. Let's make it more open-ended. Let's have a longer discussion. Let's have a longer uh, class-wide discussion that's driven by calling randomly on multiple students to get multiple perspectives. Right. Um, and that was yellow light. Yes. Green light is what uh, I'm saying go, go, go for on doing. So um, uh, my strong advice, if you're not doing this already, is... Uh, is uh, start thinking about lessons in terms of um, what are the key vocabulary words of the lesson and what do you want students to be doing with those 
those words yes. and make that your 100% focus yes. when, when planning the lesson. I really like Beth Skelton's advice that, that you, uh, that you shared earlier um, of, of backwards designing the lesson. Yeah. So before we think about the, the fun and engaging activities and oh my gosh, in science, there's so many to think about. Let's not think about any of those until we think about what are the keywords and what are the products going to be in which students are using those keywords. And then let's think to ourselves, okay, what might support the students being able to do that? Um, and, uh, and, and to me, that's a process that's a lot simpler. It's a lot easier to stay sane going with that process. Right. Um, and, and also, it really has that, that, that clear focus on the vocabulary. And it's less activity driven. It's like, instead of saying, what do I want my kids to do? It's like, oh, what content words do I want kids to learn? So that's the content that covers the content. But what do I want them to do with the content? And that's mm -hmm. the, um, the language part of it. Do I want them to describe, analyze, mm -hmm. evaluate, sequence? And that's where we can become teachers of language. We need to become teachers of, we need to uh, we maintain the, the need to teach content, but we also have to teach language at the same time. And that's how we do that. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely you're right, and, and I think as an educational community, I, I think we kind of um, make make the idea of engagement more complex than it needs to be. I think a lot of teachers feel the feel the pressure to make their lessons engaging. So, like as you said, that's what drives this activity focus of I'm going to have the most fun and exciting activity possible. And no, it doesn't need to be like that. Students are going to be engaged as long as they're able to to um, interact with each other in a structured way. Sorry. So, I mean, uh, uh, that's all that that um, that uh, engagement happens naturally when students are interacting in a structured way. So, um, so if we have the structure in place and the idea lends itself to have this activity, that's great. But um, the last thing any teacher needs to do is is fret. Oh my gosh! What fun thing can I do with my kids tomorrow? I'm, I'm lacking. I'm lacking creative energy here. What what can I do that's going to be so fun? I don't want to dress up like Miss Grizzle tomorrow. <laughs> you know, let's not worry about any of that. Let's just let's just uh, focus on having that structured interaction around language, and the kids are going to love it. They're going to have. Right. Great They're going to really grow from that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Compared to just an activity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, thank you, Dr. Stephen Fina. I really appreciate, again, for coming on and sharing. Every time you come on, we're like, yes, so great. We need more of you. So we really appreciate it. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sean. I invite you to rate this podcast and leave a comment. Each episode takes three to four hours to record and edit, so your comments make all the hours worth it. And your reviews will help educators like you find the podcast. Now, on to our recap. Dr. Stephen Flinner shared several things that I want to highlight. The first thing is that we have to teach content-specific language if we want language learners to be successful in content classes. He said that students' confidence and mastery of content run parallel to their ability to accurately use content-specific vocabulary. Stephen also talked about the need to differentiate instruction for language learners. He said, don't create 30 different lesson plans, but to create conditions where students have different paths to reach the next level. Finally, he talked about how we can use lectures to teach. 
but he reframed it as lectures as tools to set up students to engage in a task and less to deliver content. Though this conversation was specific to science classes, the principles can be applied to all classes such as drama, art, design, music, math, and social studies. It's less about the content and more about the instruction we use to help students be successful in content classes. In the next episode, I'll be hosting the legendary Dr. Jeff Spears to talk about his new book called The Communication Effect. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. I'd like to share a testimony from an educator who participated in one of my online courses. Hi, my name is Mary, and I recently took part in the January 2020 Scaffolding for Ls hosted by Tan. It was a phenomenal course, to say the least. Really one of the best things I've done recently. Uh, Best investment of time and money. As a teacher, I very seldom have people come up to me and say, hey, Mary, what are you struggling with? What would you like a little help with? And that happened almost every week with each of us. Um, We would bring something that was frustrating, being it small or large, and people would help you see it from another perspective, help you see another way that you might tackle it. But everything was always geared around helping our L's comprehend and understand and grow better, which I think was really driven home that there is no problem that we can't solve if we will just be willing to be creative and open to continuously trying. So again, I encourage you to participate and enjoy. Take care.